Okay, hello everyone. How's it going? Uh, good to see you all. Thanks so much for being here today. I'm really excited for today's reading. Uh, Daniel Borzutsky is here today. Um, and it's really the first reading uh, of our spring quarter. And so I just wanted to induce that spring quarter. You can find the schedule up on the literature website. Um, a great season uh, starting today with Daniel. Uh, and then also Wendy C. Ortiz, Annie Fox, uh, Ty Bui, and Raquel uh, Gutierrez. Um, and also, uh, I want to uh, do a huge shout out to the MFA readings. We have an amazing MFA program here and some really amazing graduate students. Uh, and they are do, we're doing two readings with them. We're doing the first year students, students who just started the program. Uh, that's Wednesday, May 24th. And then we're doing uh, a reading for the graduating students and that's going to be May 31st. So definitely want to come out and support them. Um, again, they're phenomenal. And I want to call up uh, one of those graduate students now, Valentina, to introduce Daniel. Thank you so much. Hi, welcome. Bienvenidos. Well, Daniel Borsutsky es poeta y traductor. Su escritura traza conexiones hemisféricas entre los Estados Unidos y América Latina y está especialmente enfocado en cuestiones relacionadas con la frontera y las políticas migratorias, la desigualdad económica, violencia política y del Estado y la perturbadora retórica del capitalismo extremo y las burocracias. Daniel está interesado en cómo la poesía navega y docu documenta realidades de sobredesarrollo y en desarrollo y las economías de privatización en las cuales los seres humanos soportan abusivas sanciones estatales y sistémicas. Su escritura se pregunta sobre lo que significa ser ambos un United Station y un, su y un sujeto globalizado, para el cual su cuerpo es compartido entre la tierra, el Estado y el banco. Daniel Borsuski is a poet and a translator. His writing draws hemispheric connections between the U.S. and Latin America, specifically touching upon issues relating to border and immigration policies, economic disparity, state and political violence, and the disturbing rhetoric of extreme capitalism and bureaucracies. He's interested in how poetry navigates and documents the reality of over and underdevelopment and the economies of privatization in which humans endure state-sanctioned and systemic abuses. His writing asks what it means to be both an, a United Station and a globalized subject whose body is shared between the earth, the state, and the bank. He is the author of The Performance of Becoming Human, winner of the 2016 National Book Award for Poetry. His other books and chapbooks include In the Murmurs of the Rotten Caracas Economy, 2015, Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, 2015, Data Bodies, 2013, The Book of Interfering Bodies, 2011, and The Ecstasy of Capitulation. He has translated Raul Zurita's The Country Planks, 2015, and Song for His Disappeared Love, 2010, and Jaime Luis Wenun Pork Track, 2008. His work has been supported by the Illinois Art Council the National Endowment of Arts, and the Penheim Translation Fund. He lives in Chicago.
Hello, everyone. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, it's so dark in here, and it's so bright and sunny outside. Um, so um, I'm very appreciative that you are spending your time inside um, listening to me. Um, thank you, Valentina. Thank you, Shelby, and Joy, Brandon, everybody at UCSD who... Um, invited me and helped to bring me here, and especially thanks to all the students who are here as well. Um, just like a little housekeeping, my reading will be about 40 minutes, um, and um, I'll try to contextualize a few things maybe at the beginning, uh, and then perhaps um, as I go along, uh, I'm gonna, um, you're going to hear a little bit of music. Uh, which is a, um, the first one's going to be a, a Mexican folk song called La Bruja from Veracruz, uh, about a witch. Uh, and, and that will um, stream in and out a little bit. Um, you uh, may hear uh, the 1955 commercial for uh, Fritos corn chips. Um, um, my writing, as uh, Valentina was saying, um, she's the word hemispheric, right? And so I live in Chicago, and um, my family is from Chile. And um, so one of the many things that I've been thinking about has been the relationship between those two places. Uh, and the relationship between those places um, is, is, is deep in a few ways. Uh, and so you may hear from the economist uh, Milton Friedman, uh, who um, worked at the University of Chicago uh, and who designed the, uh, helped to design the economic policies that uh, became the economic policies under the military dictatorship in, in Chile. So in 1973 in Chile, uh, the general Augusto Pinochet overthrew the democratically elected uh, president Salvador Allende, uh, who was a socialist. Uh, after that, uh, there was um, thousands of people who died and disappeared, and, but uh, in a different level there was, or on a related level, I should say, there was an economic policy which involved um, trying to figure out how to get the government as, as, as much out of the economy as possible uh, and um, doing a sort of privatization uh, in a very intense way. And this was designed at the University of Chicago. So um, schools became privatized. Uh, you now hear this rhetoric. We've now returned to this rhetoric of voucher programs, which is actually what existed in Chile, uh, which is almost entirely privatized its public school system, uh, health care, uh, water, um, streets and public services like that. Um, and um, part, of, part of my idea and what I've seen happening is that those ideas that were designed in Chicago and sort of um, experimented with in Chile for the first time under the military dictatorship, because that was part of the um, ideas of the um, economists, was that they needed a uh, a place that was experiencing a kind of shock, a political shock, uh, to be able to enact their policies, that part of that plan was to eventually bring those policies back to Chicago. Um, so um, many of the same things that uh, were originally implemented in Chile, um, such as the privatization of, of schools and hospitals and things like that, um, we see intensely in Chicago. Um, so I can talk a bit more about that. Uh, later as well. Um, so if there's any other contextualizing to do, I, I will try to let you know.
or cry, or they say, there is nothing to be gained from emotional responsiveness, so they beat us when we laugh or snarl or cry. And they say, you have shame in your eyeballs, you have love in your eyeballs, you have pain in your dimples, you have guilt in your mouth, objection in your lips, joy in your nostrils, anger in your cheekbones, love in the bags under your eyes, passion in your eyebrows, fear in your chin, disgust in your forehead, disaster and promise and despair in the furrows of your face and in the murmuring economies on your rotten carcass tongue. Lake Michigan, scene number X1C290.3418B3DY1. There is a yellow barrier in front of a warehouse on the west side of Chicago. An authoritative body with a gun wears a leather jacket that says policia on the back of it. There are no secrets. The prisoners are tortured in a secret police compound that everyone knows about. Hola, mira, estamos en el centro del mundo. mundo. No me gusta estar tan conectado a la tierra. Prefiero viajar por el espacio sideral. Los planetas, las estrellas, el mundo me aburre, dice el cuerpo autoritario. Me voy a Chicago, me voy a Jupiter, me voy a Saturno. Vamos a Chicago, es mucho más fácil que nos maten o que matemos o que liberemos nuestras almas de nuestros cuerpos. O vais fucking versa, punto, period. Do you read me? Yes. Hi, see, it's hard being in the center of the country, being in the center of the country, it's a bit like being in the center of the universe. I'd rather be in outer space, moving through planets and stars. Oh, Earth, you are so boring, not like on Saturn or Jupiter or the moon. Brothers and sisters and Earthlings, let us go to Chicago. It's so much easier to be killed there or to kill or to free our souls from our bodies. I mean our bodies from our souls. Did you hear the one about the military gang that called the mayor in the middle of the night demanding money to save his daughter? A girl's voice could be heard on the other end, gagged and muffled. But ha, the mayor knew better. His daughter was not at home. She was vacationing on Lake Geneva on the southern tip of Wisconsin. The criminals were arrested after the location of their cellular phones was detected through sophisticated satellite software. The criminals went to jail where they molded forever and ever. Ay, qué bonito es volar, y a las dos de la mañana, y a las dos de la mañana, y ay, qué bonito es volar, ay, mamá, volar y dejarse caer en los brazos de tu hermana, en los brazos de tu hermana. The authoritative bodies screen films at night in the prison camps on the beaches at the northern end of Chicago. There's one they project on Sundays on the outer wall of the prison. We sit on the sand and watch it under the mist and moon. The authoritative bodies tell us to laugh, and when we don't laugh, they beat us. 
They tell us to cry. When we cry, they beat us. They command us to make little sounds to signal that we are experiencing aesthetic or emotional pleasure as we watch the Sunday night film that begins in a warehouse, a holding cell for immigrants who are smuggled across the border. Meet M, the star of the film. She's a mother of three. Her children are in California. She does not have papers. She has paid a smuggler $6,200 to help her cross the border, and when she makes it into Arizona, her family members will have to pay more money to finish the deal. There she is in a cell crammed wall to wall with other people who have been paid thousands of dollars and are now stuck in an airless shack until the smugglers decide it's okay to leave. The sun rises and now she's walking through the desert. Overhead shot of barrel cacti, brittle bush, chain fruit choya, Joshua trees, jumping choyas, mojave aster, soap tree yucca, prickly pear cacti, Lizards, gila monsters, bobcats, tortoises, desert toads, pygmy owls, thorny devils. The immigrants in the film are weak, hungry, barely able to move. Some are stumbling to the ground, or crawling, or completely unable to move. But just as you think they are going to collapse from dehydration, together they start to sing. Ay, que bonito a la voz de la mañana, a la voz de la mañana. Ay, qué bonito es volar, ay, mamá, volar y volar y volar. A la voz de la mañana, a la voz de la mañana. Ay, qué bonito es volar, ay, mamá. And there is a miracle. They begin to fly. They begin to fly over the border like witches. They are witches and they fly over the border and they sing. It is so beautiful to fly. It is so beautiful to fly. And they do not die of dehydration. And they are not arrested. And their smugglers are arrested and forced to return the thousands of dollars they have taken from them. The immigrants fly and fly across the desert until they land in the middle of a cosmopolitan city where a handsome, kind bureaucrat takes them to a hotel where they are given a warm bed and bath for the night. A few hundred dollars to get to their next location, the appropriate documents, so that they work and work and have health care. They are welcomed by the bureaucrats with gratitude, joy, and compassion. As we watch the film, they make us sing on the beaches of Lake Michigan. It's so beautiful to fly. It's so beautiful to fly. And we sing as loud as we can so that they can hear us on the prison ships a half mile off the coast. And tonight, as we watch our brothers and sisters flying across the desert, there are no machetes. There is no blood on our bodies. There are no forceps jammed into our orifices. There are no kicks. No blows, no handcuffs. Damn, feels good to fly. That's what the body must always remember.
the voice of Mel Blanc. I heard you want to be a Frito Bandido like me. You too? Then you must sing the Bandido song. Let's sing together. You just follow the bouncing Fritos corn chips bag. Ay, 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 ay. I am the Frito Bandido. I like Fritos corn chips. I love them, I do. I want Fritos corn chips. I'll get them from you. Ay, 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 ay. Oh, I am the Frito Bandito. Give me Fritos corn chips and I'll be your friend. The Frito Bandito, you must not offend. Now, boys and girls, you are Frito Bandidos too. You sing the Frito Bandito song and you look for crunchy Fritos corn chips. That's nice. Munch, 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 bunch of Fritos corn chips. So the character uh, uh, in the uh, video is wearing a sombrero and um, has bullets strapped across his uh, neck and back, uh, sorry, front, uh, like a Mexican bandit or a stereotype of a Mexican bandit from the, um, from the Mexican-American War, and he has a giant uh, mustache. And um, at some point in the 1950s, like the guys on Mad Men decided that this would sell corn chips. Um, so this next piece begins with an epigraph from uh, the comments thread on the YouTube video um, of this uh, piece, which says, quote, too bad we live in a world so uptight that we can't have things like the Frito Bandito anymore. In the blazing cities of your rotten carcass mouth. The children were eating the bushes outside of their former houses that had been crushed by the Bank of America. There was a boy in a bush singing an improvised song about a bulldozer that obliterates the bureaucratic centers of the earth. Do you remember cheese, he sang to his friend. Te acuerdas de la piña? Do you remember fairies, he sang. Te acuerdas de los patos? Do you remember school bells and cowards and the boys who would come to our yard to eat the scraps of food we threw to them before the city started to blaze? Bienvenidos a CVS. Si cuenta con tu extra care card, please escanea it now. There really wasn't money anymore, or at least there wasn't money for us. The man with the camera kissed me and took photographs of the blood that dripped from my fingers. Everyone knew he was CIA. He knew, for example, that the blood that dripped from my face tasted like the blood of the workers assassinated by the fatherland. Then I found a dying shack and I met a man with a chain and he was snoring and talking in his sleep and he smelled like pee and complained he had lost his pension when they privatized the city in the dying days of the rotten carcass economy. Looking after the world is a shitty job if you're really not a people person. <laughs> he slept on the floor with a chain tied to him. It rode over his crotch, and for $23, he would bless you into heaven so you would not have to remain in the purgatory of the blazing city. The further I fall, the smaller I become, he chanted. This poem would be better if it took place in the saloon of good fortune. It would be better if a man jumped off the bar and onto my back as I was reciting it, if I caught him on my back and smashed him into a table. If one of his hoodlum buddies smashed me over the head with a bottle of tequila, this poem would be better with just the right amount of sex, alcohol, violence, and 1950s border noir. The chained man was moaning about how he had gone from office to office to see what the good Lord had to offer. And all I have now, he sang, is a chain and a basket full of fingernails. An old brown dog was tied by another chain to a rafter. The dog wouldn't stop yapping, and I understood I was being refused absolution. 
But I'm Jewish, I told the dog. I'm a member of La Raza de Moises. He barks love, the chained man sang, and he wouldn't stop singing and I needed to rest so I would be able to find the boat that would help me get away. I sat on the floor to sleep, woke up in chains, and there was no one to tell my story to. I lay stiff, holding my breath, trying to be anyone but myself. Imagination challenge number one. Imagine there is a matzo ball bandito in your house. You buy lots of matzo balls and mix them with jalapenos and Fritos and light them on fire, and then you survive the apocalypse because Fritos can stay lit forever and you don't need to find kindling or any of that other stuff, so you finally have time to study Carlito Marx while watching Manchester United's Mexican hero Chicharito Hernandez score a poacher's goal in the waning seconds of the Carling Cup while eating hallucinogenic mushrooms while watching Eric Estrada on chips on another screen and listening to a podcast of the Book of Leviticus on your iPod touch while Skyping with your mom while sexting with your boyfriend who works for the secret police. <laughs> Write a sonnet or a villanelle about this experience and do not use any adjectives. Then I clutched a man trapped beneath my body. He refused to stop breathing and so did I. It was 98 degrees. There were echoes trapped in the wall and they belonged to the broken bodies waiting for the boat on the river. And the man in my arms said, are they ordinary people, these trapped voices? They are ordinary. I sang, demolished, relentless, and alone. And we sang, once I made $60,000 a year working for the city. This was before I blazed. But then one day I came to work and there was an incinerator outside of our building. My colleagues were scuttling around, trying to salvage things from their offices. I told this to my boy, and all I could say is, what, daddy, is an incinerator? A container for burning refuse, I answered, as I incinerated my desk in a photograph of you that I loved. I saw them putting my plants and books in it, and there was no explanation why. There was only an automated voicemail on my cell phone from the incinerating bodies who said they were serving the city and that soon all of the city would blaze. I dream of a giant parasite to feed on the infested bones of the rotting citizens. There are sirens that won't stop blaring and rotten teeth in all of our mouths. And when I asked an authoritative body what to do now that my life had been incinerated, he told me to go to the river and ask to be put on a boat. I went to the river and found a bodybuilder who would not stop running. He was enormous, wearing only boxer trunks, and he complained that his lover was overusing the word cock. He was frantically running, and he couldn't stop running, and I was looking for the boat, and the bodybuilder was screaming about his lover's overuse of the word cock, and for a moment he spoke of a Jewish centaur on the bank of the river, and he kept running. He wouldn't stop running, and his boxing trunks were red and sulky, and when I asked why he was running, he shouted that his life was a symbol for something that doesn't exist. It was 98 degrees. The evening star came out. A limp, stale moon hung over us. And this is where the story should end. But bedtime stories for the end of the world don't end where they are supposed to end. They end awkwardly in the middle of some mess that was probably not worth making to begin with. Here's an alternative ending. Imagination challenge number two. It's nighttime. You're decomposing in a cage or a cell. Your father is reading the testimonies of the tortured villagers to you. He is in the middle of a particularly poignant passage about how the military tied up the neighbor, the narrator, and made him watch as his children were lit on fire. 
He has to listen to the screams of his blazing children, but he cannot listen to their screams. So he himself starts screaming, and then the soldiers shove a gag in his mouth so that he will stop screaming, but he doesn't stop screaming, even with the gag in his mouth. But these are not screams, actually. They are unclassifiable noises that can only be understood as a collaboration between his dying body, the obliterated earth, and the bodies of those already dead. Write a free verse poem about the experience. Write it in the second person. Publish it someplace good. This is Milton Friedman being interviewed. This says uh, uh, you supported Pinochet or advised Pinochet. I never advised Pinochet. I never supported Pinochet. We'll throw that one away. Uh, uh, but, but, hold on. No, I don't want to evade the question. All right. Chile was a case in which a military regime headed by Pinochet was willing to switch the organization of the economy from a top-down to a bottom-up performance and in that process, a group of people who had been trained at the University of Chicago in the Department of Economics, who came to be called the Chicago Boys, played a major role in designing and implementing the economic reforms. The real miracle in Chile was not that those economic reforms worked so well. Chile is by all odds the, the best success story in Latin America today. The real miracle is not that those... Uh, economic arrangements worked so well because that's what Adam Smith said. The real miracle is that a military junta was willing to let him do it. And so one of the things I didn't say earlier is um, that, uh, so in Chile, uh, the economic policies um, were, were performed under the smokescreen of, of kind of major state violence. Um, and while the scale is not really similar, I think there's something that's going on in Chicago as well as in other urban places in the United States as well, um, which is that there is a kind of mass policing and criminalization and violence uh, towards um, poor communities and communities of, of peoples of color, uh, and that um, that those uh, that that violence and that over policing and that militarization is happening in conjunction with and perhaps um, in order to achieve um, this kind of restructuring of the economy that Friedman is talking about, the private world. Did you hear the one about the man they found torched in a garbage can? The police shoved a gas-soaked gag in his mouth and lit a match. The psychiatrist came quickly to counsel the police officers who were required to set the body on fire. They fed them the appropriate medications, soothed them with the appropriate words, taught them the proper techniques to heal themselves so that they might be able to survive their minds and the murmurs of the rotten carcass economy. Hello, what talks to you at night? Are you haunted by the voices of the immigrants who suffocated in a truck abandoned on the side of the Arizona highway? The driver locked them in the back and went off to have a few drinks at the Bar of Good Fortune in Maricopa County. He didn't mean to be gone for 16 hours. He didn't mean to drink so much he passed out and left them in a truck 
with no air or water. Oh well, only a couple died. Actually, he said, I prefer my nightmares with a more urban twist. Meet E. He was shot seven times at the bus stop last month. Stupid hair. It looked like all the other hair, and the shooter thought it was Jay's hair. They shot him seven times. Did you hear the one about the refugees who could make the bus stop explode? The refugees were waiting at the bus stop for the bus to transport them from one detention center to another. They were from New Orleans. They were from Mexico. They were from Rwanda, Iraq, Eritrea, Chicago, Detroit, Sudan, Guatemala, El Salvador, Cuba, Kazakhstan, Syria, etc., they were from my neighborhood, and when they came to your neighborhood, their bodies appeared as fields of wheat and flames. A trick of the camera, and now they are collapsing bridges that toss foreign cars into an angry, salty ocean. They brought the refugees to the morgue and asked them to imagine their faces in the bodies of birds. It was a gesture developed in a think tank. Their deaths will be easier if they can fly off in a certain direction. The dying man had two bodies. One body was bound for the private world. The other body was bound for another private world. A mouth said, there's only this world. A belly said, they've privatized the forests, the clouds, the sky, the rocks, the water, the trees, the bees, the flowers, the moon. A mouse said, the workers must defend against the privatization of everything. It spat bricks, and when the bricks crashed against the sidewalks, some little bodies fell out of them. They were replicas of the bodies killed when the coal mine collapsed in West Virginia, China, Colombia, Chile, South Africa, Utah, Bosnia, etc. Their lungs were black, and when you touched their coal-stained faces, their skin disappeared. Revolutionary violence disgusts me, the voice said. A voice said, my bones were torn apart first by the police and then by the revolutionaries. They were struggling to solve the same question. What does it mean to give up your body for an abstraction? We dragged our bodies to the bank. We sang to the bankers, we feel the need to blame someone for our collective misery. The banker said, we are your brothers. Take these bones and suck on them. Take these cubes of ice and rub each other cold as you make love in this horrible vacuum. Brothers, it's okay to set yourselves on fire to mutilate your bodies in order to protest what you don't understand. Do you want to know a secret? There is a machine in my mouth that spits and eats and spits and eats and spits and eats cadavers, chickens, olives, Easter eggs, bones, blood, words, sand, teeth, children, mountains, deserts, leaves, ghosts, sewers, rivers, mouths, humiliations, calloused hands, sperm, bubbles, wind, blood, rain, the machine wants to do something to your body. It wants to exterminate its empire. It wants to melt your body, to bleach your body, to fry your body, to hold your body, to redden your body, to freeze your body, to lick your body, to know your body, to explode your body, to birth your body, to make you vomit and twist into a night cursed with shame and fear. Sorry, sing the bankers to the proletariat. You don't really exist right now. A glitch in the system, nothing that can't be fixed by a full-scale overhaul of absolutely everything. Dream song number 423. 
Then I stepped out of the sea and into a bonfire on the beach, and the beach became a prairie, and the prairie began to reproduce itself. For miles and miles we walked along the fence until we reached an abandoned factory where the workers had all died from dehydration when the manager told them they could no longer afford to have water. Too much time tomando agua, compadre, equal not enough time making t-shirts. Not enough time making t-shirts, shlomito, equals not enough time money to pay you, cabroncito. Not enough money to pay you equals the sidewalk, the park bench, the coyotes banging your head against the side of the truck. Don't need my intestines, jefecito. Don't need my feet, patroncito. Don't need ojos, carapelo. None of that shit. They don't let you torture at the United Nations. These were the final words of the borderless body as it crumbled into the sand. I don't remember how the song ends. I think there was a landscape and we put a curtain over it and the children came running out and we pulled up the curtain and they jumped into mountain number 423. And they looked for their mothers and fathers, but all they found were sheep and goats and lepers. In the last verse, we sang a song about the Statue of Liberty, the fastest woman in all of Mexico. I love her, sing the generals and the CEOs. I love her, sing the Bolivians and the Peruvians. I love her, sing the beggars and the bankers. I love her rusted body, sing the pornographers and the doctors. I love her reverie, her darkness, her malleability, sing the professors. I love her, sings the poet, because she reminds me of my mother, and my mother reminds me of myself, and I remind myself of my father and all the mouths he needs to feed. I hate living. I do nothing. I love deserts and cacti and the infinite tunnels where my dream song turns into a blood song splattered from a mouth into a puddle of exploding ventricles, pussed up pasaportes and hypnotized halos of light. I'm going to read uh, a piece from an older book in the Murmurs of the Rotten Carcass Economy, and then I'll finish with a couple of new pieces um, that were written in the last few months in the Murmurs of the Rotten Carcass Economy. It's true. There's the innocence of life from Marguerite Duras. One. I can't actually write the question there are too many things that get in my way. There are bodies sticking together in broken ways. There are bodies that make up sentences, and I'm going to have to delete the question I wrote. But now I'm ashamed of it because it refers to the relationship between X concept and the fake world and Z thing in the real world. And I'm afraid of the bodies and how they are lining them up in the compounds, afraid of the bodies that make sentences, afraid of the bodies and how they are like sentences that begin with conjunctions. I love to begin sentences with conjunctions. I love it when they line the bodies up in holes or in stadiums and they form the body into words and sentences. There are marching bands and ghosts, and then there are bodies with the authority to remove skin. But please don't use the word shed. It doesn't quite encapsulate the experience I'm talking about. <clears throat> Think of Paris and the lights over the Seine on Christmas Eve about the muddy Mapocha River in winter. There's hardly any water in it. Think of Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemon and the midget who says, I as he points to another body floating down the river, end stop, period. The authoritative bodies had ideas about fingernails. Could they be used as commas? They hated semicolons. They didn't believe in adjectives. 
all of the people I love are in love with the absence of adjectives. <coughs> Two. I'm curious about aesthetics and revolution and whether or not aesthetics can only exist in the absence of revolution, but it's disgusting to pose such questions while driving in a heated Japanese car through the grit of a shit snow night in a crumbling city in the Midwestern United States or on a bus tour of a city in the island to the south where on the sidewalk children sit eating cardboard sandwiches drizzled with soy sauce from plastic packets and a voice on the loudspeaker says, to your left you will see an X-type person. We don't have many X-type people in our city. We consider it good luck to see an X-type person and it was just our lucky day because there munching on a cardboard sandwich dribbled with, drizzled with soy sauce was an X-type person announcing the beginning of, move, of a movement away from one thing and towards another thing. It is impossible to know what these things are, but I am certain there is an aesthetics of crumbling buildings and in the murmurs of the rotten carcass economy. I hear something I will mention to you when the words have taken over my mouth. Three, writing is the pace of the written word passing through your body. There's a little plastic packet of soy sauce and a cardboard sandwich being eaten by a little person, and then there is a data chip I would like to insert into your skin, dear reader, dear data body, and I would like the data chip to cause things to grow inside of you. I am in love with the little flowers growing inside of you. Inside of you is the smallest woman, the entire world. Inside of you is a disgusting feeling, a sensation like that when you touch the impossible spot, the one that no one ever touches, that there weren't things like this. Writing would never take place. And by things, I mean anonymous dead bodies on the ground in anonymous sleepy villages. I slept in a fancy hotel across the street from an enormous hole where the skin and the hair of the fallen bodies were drilled into by bulldozers. This thing called love. Five. Data body. My love. I would not be opposed to having my pants ripped into shreds if I knew they could keep the fire going a bit longer. I would not be opposed to having my walls knocked down in the wood and the walls could keep the fire going a bit longer. I would not be opposed to depositing your cardboard sandwiches into the flames if I thought it could keep us warm for just another minute longer. Breath, glue, word, brick, wood, nail, gum, something that is held together evolves into a structure that cannot be contained by soldiers or language or ideas. Think of a bowl of pistachio gelato at the top of the Spanish steps. Think of a battle between a figurative body and a literal body, which there's no chance the literal body will ever win. Think of a little person as she squats in the ground of a foreclosed property. History is asserting itself into her mouth and veins. There is nothing we can do about the fact that the ceiling will destroy her soft and crumbly body. Six. It's calm here now. The main horror is the idea, the word, the body. There is the sense, there is the ongoing nightmare of a continuously deteriorating nation. Seven. In conclusion, there's the flood and the bodies that washes to shore. There are the bags of money in the moment they are hurled from the window. There are the banks and there are the explosions. There are the buildings and the aesthetics of the crumble. There are the cities and there are the machines that no longer collect their feces. There are the rivers and there are the dead birds that occupy them. There are the beaches and the broken cities beneath them. There are the animal cages and there are the citizens who sit in them. There is the poem and there is the very last word spoken by the body that threw itself in front of a tank. There is the highway and the man who sets himself aflame on the side of it. There is the church and the bodies that frame it. There, in the space after the period in between the first word of the sentence of the new era, here in the space after the comma and the first breath taken in the new era, here in the sheets of the hospitalized refugees in the state on the other side of the river, after, the after, the after, the after, there are words and there is nothing to say about them.
So I'll conclude with um, two pieces from a book that I'm finishing called Lake Michigan. These are the final two pieces of the book. They were written in the last um, last couple of months. Um, and um, they're kind of a continuation of the, the first two pieces that I read, which were also called Lake Michigan, or scenes from Lake Michigan, um, from my previous book. Um, so these are Lake Michigan's scene 18 and scene 19. Scene 18. It's not enough to feel shame. It is not enough to starve. It is not enough to be dead when others are more dead. I drink coffee in the morning among murderers. My neighbors love nooses and bullets. The grass refuses to die. The city keeps reappearing. Why won't it disappear forever? The streets were better when they were dried up rivers. The rivers were better when they were gurgling swamps. We live in the blankest of times. I can sense love in the mouths of my captors. I can sense love in the eyes of my captors. I can sense love in the way they touch me, but it's an illusion. They hate us. They would kill us all as quickly as they could if it weren't for the United Nations. The lake keeps disappearing and there is too much light. We can't see the lake because all we see is light. And the light is the water they dump us in. And they dump us in the water and they count us. They count us, but they can't get the numbers right, so they count us again and again. And we whisper to our broken bodies, don't let them tell you there's no use in speaking. Don't let them tell you there's no use in being silent. Don't let them tell you there's no use in fighting back when they beat us. Don't let them tell you there's no use in not fighting back when they beat us. Don't let them tell you there's no use in laughing even when nothing is funny. I died in Chicago on a beach where the broken bodies are sealed in plastic, where the broken bones are covered with cement, and the cockroaches are swimming in puddles of our spit and blood. They're swimming in the things that are forced out of our bodies, but I have light in my eyes, and today I have hope. I can hypnotize anyone who touches me the wrong way, which is everyone, because no one who is kind is allowed to touch me. I live in crate number 18. I will soon be shipped across the border to the financiers who own me, but how much of me do they own, and who owns the blood that drips from my wounds into the hemorrhaging sky that can't withstand its own illness? The wound sky and the race wind it dumps on us. We live in the blankest of times. Scene 19. The beaches are filled with cages, and the cages are filled with bodies, and the bodies are filled with burdens, and the burdens consume the bodies, and the bodies do not know to whom they owe their life. I drop my body on the sand, and someone tells me to pick it up. I drop to the sand to pick up my body, and someone tells me to steal more hair, to steal more flesh, to steal more bones, to steal more fingers. I tell them I cannot risk contaminating the data. I tell them if I steal more data, more hair, and the data will not be clean. I tell them I cannot touch my own body out of fear of contaminating the data. I have a virus, I say. I'm contagious, I say. No salt in my body, no heat in my blood. The sand is dying slowly. It turns into a wall, and in the wall there is a nook, and in the nook there is light, and in light there is God, and in God there is nothing, and in nothing there is hope, and in hope there is abandonment, and abandonment there is wound, and in wound there is nation, and in nation there are bones, and bones there is time, and in time there is light, and in light there are numbers. In numbers there are codes, and in the codes there are mountains, and in the mountains there are bodies searching for bones. In the mountains there are tunnels, and in the tunnels there is so much festering garbage. 
The men in uniform take the garbage away, but they have a hard time distinguishing the garbage from the people, so they scoop it all up and carry us into the next morning. And in the next morning, there is a confession. I have put my burdens in the wrong body. I have framed my burdens in the wrong language. I have staked my burdens to the wrong nation. I need medicine to sleep. I need medicine to stop the shrieking in my ears. I need medicine to make the Chicago corpses turn into hydrangeas. I need medicine to make the immigrants turn into butterflies. I need an injection to make the bureaucrats turn into terrorists. It's raining again on Lake Michigan. Some say it is raining bodies, but really it's raining trash. The trash they bomb us with explodes when it lands near our bodies, and our bodies are tornadoes. Did you hear the one about the frog they dumped into the boiling water? Where is the frog at the children's scream? Where is our beautiful frog? And the owners of the frog, who are also the owners of the children, are worried about the frog, but not so worried that they take it out of the boiling water. And the joke turns into a mystery novel about how God keeps his hands from shaking when he is about to destroy the universe. I need my burdens, sing the bodies on the beach. I fight for my burdens, scream the bodies on the beach. I know the blankness of my burdens is a battle for love and country. I know the blankness of my burdens is a coda to the death of the city. I don't know why I can't see the moon anymore. I can't see the stars or the sky anymore. I don't even bother to look up. Thank you. not a softball question Sorry. actually um, um, but no it's a, it's a but it's a, but it's a good question um, no softballs who wants softballs um, and so I would say a couple things so one one is that you know I suppose in the aftermath of um, I, I've been interviewed a lot over the last few months in relationship to the National Book Award, right? And um, and I don't say that like boastfully, but I say it to help answer the question. And, and one of the questions that um, I've gotten a lot was has been something along the lines of um, of um, something about how the book um, sort of 
I don't know, predicted what was going to happen or how the book has a different resonance uh, under Trump than it did before. Um, and, and I find myself having a complicated relationship to that question because on the one hand, I want to sort of like insist that I wrote the book prior to Trump's presidency and that um, many of the issues, um, in particular um, the issues surrounding immigration, um, and, I, and I sort of, well, okay, let me slow down. I, I, I find myself having to insist on a couple things. One is that I think Donald Trump's going, life, is going to make life worse for many people, right, but that things were already pretty bad uh, in a lot of ways, right, and in terms of immigration and immigration policy, in terms of... Um, in terms of uh, economic policies in places in a place like Chicago, which is entirely run by Democrats, uh, where there is a sort of um, republican style privatization that has happened in um, more intense forms than um, most anywhere else, um, and in terms of um, the um, policing and abuse of um, people of color in the inner cities, uh, this certainly was um, very, very relevant before. Um, so that's one way I, I think I would want to sort of think about the question is that all of these issues were present and that, um, you know, Trump did not spring out of nothing, right? Uh, and there is, um, there was, there was a deep context from which he arose. Um, but two, and, and maybe this is the first time I've, I've talked about this, I, I, like the last few pieces I did write kind of immediately after the election and, um, I was a little bit like stuck uh, on my book until then, and then I started writing again. And one of the things I found was that um, in my previous books, um, the violence that I was writing about was often um, mediated through like a kind of meta rhetoric, uh, and by meta rhetoric I mean like a kind of um, Rhetoric that interrupts uh, it interrupts itself to re to to reflect on what is happening in the poem, right? Um, so um, so there will be a line of violence uh, or a line uh, discussing something violent, and then the the, the narrator, or the speaker, will um, kind of stop and reflect on it. And um, one of the things in retrospect that I notice about those poems that I that I wrote in the aftermath of the election was that that kind of mediation went away. Um, and that um, the violence was sort of happening unmediatedly um, to the speaker. Um, and so I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know quite what to make of that other than, um, other than uh, like, I think, um, like, just capitalism just like threw its gloves off and wasn't even pretending anymore uh, to be like ethical. Not that I was pretending that much earlier, but like now it just was just like pounding the shit out of me um, without anybody interfering there. So that's, I don't know, that, that's one of the things that I think I've noticed in, in, in my own writing. Sure. <laughs> You're <laughs> all right. Uh, you're you're second. Uh, yes, over here. Actually, more of the camp base. One of the sections you had was you played a little bit from your computer. Uh huh. And so, do you always do that during presentations? And how do you like implement that with just the book? Uh, 
Um, uh, this was today's presentation was motivated by a text that I got from one of um, from Shelby this afternoon asking if I wanted any um, if I was going to use any any media, uh, and um, so I kind of put together some stuff. Um, but I do often I don't always, but I do often use um, um, video or audio during presentations. Um, Um, uh, I do often use um, video and, and uh, audio during presentations, um, and in some cases, um, I've kind of rewritten texts um, to fit the actual um, bits of media that I've been showing, um, or that I might show along with it. Uh, in other cases, it, I don't know, it um, is either... I don't know, somehow complimentary um, in like a very different way. Like people who are writers go to a lot of readings and readings um, often tend to be like people speaking at you. Uh, and so I think it's just nice to have a sort of um, something to break it up a bit. And so I think that's part of what part of what was going on there. Okay, I have to call on my child who's probably going to ask me something very embarrassing. Yes, go ahead. Can I make my poems less dark? No, I don't know how. <laughs> There's a request that I make my poems less dark. Why can't you? Okay. <laughs> See, Lorenzo, you have you have you have some support. Um, I don't know. Uh, um, so there was a section in when I originally wrote the performance of Becoming Human, I was kind of aware of this, and I tried to write a section that was called Light Poems. It's still dark. I know. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Stop heckling your father. This is being recorded and will be archived forever and ever. <laughs> um and so I tried to uh, incorporate this idea of light, both as like lightness as well as about light, like physically, like about the light you know that shines on us. Um, and um, and and I um, and I think I did that to try to sort of create some sort of contrast, um, but in the end, um, it didn't it didn't happen. Um, and, and so why don't I? I don't know. Um, I, I think I have evolved. Like, I think at one point I had more of, like, a sense of humor uh, and that um, I um, um, found um, I, that I, I guess I felt like my own writing had a different um, purpose in mind. I, I um, don't mean to say that to be prescriptive. Um, but then I think something else happened, too, which is that... Um, um, I don't know. I've never said this with Lorenzo present, but like when 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 my when when Lorenzo when you were born in two thousand and eight, um, this was during a time of um, of, of global economic crisis, uh, and um, and also like having a child uh, made things feel very serious and made life feel very. Um, important and heavy in a very different way than I think it did before. Um, and, and there was something about that experience which I think actually changed my um, tenor or my approach um, to writing. Um, 
so I think that was one thing. I think um, a lot of the work that I was doing as a translator, um, I think I was um, was was affecting was was I was influenced by, or at least conceptually influenced by. Uh, and in particular, I spent a lot of time on the work of the Chilean writer Raúl Zurita, um, who. Um, talks about how since the military coup in Chile in 1973, how he's essentially been writing the same book uh, over and over again, or how he sees it all as one book. Um, and, um, and that idea, I think, has been one that has helped me feel like it's okay, you know, that it's okay to kind of write the same, same book over and over again, or to see your life as one continuous book that you're trying to write. But the other somewhat of simple reason is that when I try to, if if I were to try, when I try to like write something, you know, quote lighter, uh, it just feels fake. Okay. <laughs> other questions? Yes. Thanks. Uh huh. Um, and thank you for those questions. Both are really good. So I'm going to um, separate them. Um, and the first had to do with the, the relationship between Chile and Chicago. So, you know, I started thinking about this um, around 2014 or so. And, um, and at the time I started thinking about it, I was thinking about it more from um, more in the sense of economics. Um, so in 2012 in Chicago, there was a public school teacher strike, which was the first time there had been a school teacher strike in 27 years in Chicago. Um, in Chile in 2012, uh, there were mass education strikes, which lasted uh, like almost the entirety of a year, um, both at the... Um, uh, high school and college level, uh, and um, the issues were largely the same. Um, they had to do with uh, getting private interests out of um, out of public education or out of education. Uh, so um, in Chile, a couple things happen. That um, one is that um, in order to go to public school, many people, sorry, in order to go to elementary school, many people end up going into the kind of debt that we go into here in this country just to go to, to, go to when we go to college. Uh, and then that was being compounded when they went to college. Uh, and there was a sort of for-profit college system that was arising. Uh, and so the student protests, um, which were significant for, for, uh, for their content, um, but were also significant because they were the, maybe the first sort of very mass protests that had happened at, at this huge scale in Chile in the post-dictatorship years. Um, so, um, so I was thinking about the economics of the two places, right? But then in 2014, 
14 or 15, um, there was some reporting that came out of The Guardian uh, about a prison in Chicago called Homan Square, which becomes a little bit of the inspiration for some of this later stuff that I was writing. And Homan Square um, was known as a, quote, black site. Uh, and essentially it was a place that has operated for um, many, many years uh, and um, where the police were essentially disappearing people for a matter of um, days, not like in Chile where people were, were disappearing forever. But, um, but people would be arrested uh, and not registered and might spend up to a few days in Homan Square um, in what is clearly illegal. Uh, they were not uh, allowed access to phone calls, to attorneys, to speaking with their families. Essentially, they would disappear off the map for a couple days. Um, so people involved in criminal justice and, and um, attorneys knew about this place, but then it was kind of broke. The stories broke, and they started to um, release numbers, and uh, the numbers of people who had been in there um, were extremely high, um, something like um, over 90% of the people uh, who had been arrested there were black. There was a case of one person dying. There were many reports of people being tortured in different ways. Uh, so there was that reporting, which, um, again, I, I, I want to be careful in saying that like Chile and Chicago are not the same places. Uh, and so the scale of, of violence in Chile is much greater. But, um, but this was a um, something that would happen under a dictatorship, let's say that. Uh, and then kind of tracing back the roots of police violence in Chicago since the 70s, um, when the Chicago boys were working and when Pinochet was operating, there have been um, police scandals in Chicago as well um, that have kind of long um, histories of documented torture uh, and in particular targeting um, targeting uh, black people in Chicago. Um, and so I guess I began to put together the, uh, the economics and the violence of the two places, right? And that there was uh, something very similar going on, uh, that the kind of extreme neoliberalism in Chicago was in working in conjunction with this, um, as I said before, this kind of over-policing and um, over-militarization of um, poor communities and neighborhoods of color in Chicago, uh, and that it was happening in conjunction with this um, privatized neoliberal economy, uh, and that the two things needed each other, or at least the, econ the economic, um, the, econ the economy needed the mass policing in order to subdue the public, right? Um, and, I, and I think that that is a very similar, similar idea, at least, um, to what I saw, um, to what to what was happening in Chile. To the second part of your question about data. Um, so um, I guess I started thinking about this after 9-11. Um, after and so um, my first, oh, sorry, my, um, my book, The Book of Interfering Bodies, which I maybe have up here in my mess somewhere, um, begins... Um, with an epigraph. So it begins with an epigraph from the 9-11 Commission report, um, which says something like, um, we must find a way of routinizing and bureaucratizing the exercise of imagination. 
Uh, and the idea about that, so after 9-11, there was this weird sort of moment where there was this discussion of imagination, uh, um, where there was this sort of false idea being um, talked about that 9-11 was a failure of the imagination. That was a phrase that was sort of being bandied about. Uh, that uh, the failure to predict 9-11 was a failure that we could not imagine it properly, um, which was just wrong because there was intelligence to suggest that something like this might happen. But there was this brief little moment where um, the imagination was being talked about um, in relation to public policy. Um, and I found that to be pretty um, interesting. And um, and so then the 9-11 Commission report came along and it had this uh, chapter called Failure on the Imagination where it um, has this very stunning quote about bureaucratizing the imagination. Uh, and I was like, okay, I got to read further to see what their suggestions are for how they're going to bureaucratize the imagination. Uh, and um, they just didn't have any. Um, and um, so, the, so uh, you know, which is better than um, in, in the end. Um, but so part of the project of that book then became to think about what it might mean to bureaucratize the imagination um, and to think about kind of the imagination in relationship to bureaucracy. Um, so um, so I was thinking a lot about um, data uh, and, um, and the ways in which bureaucracies depend on um, seeing people as data, right? Um, to not see people as individuals in order to... Um, in order to, I don't know, um, and not see them as real human beings. Um, so, I so I don't know, I sort of, um, my books, I guess, began to sort of divide people into bodies, and those bodies were tended to be something like data bodies uh, or authoritative bodies. Uh, and, um, and, and that's where that started, was to kind of think about the relationship between these extreme... Um, bureaucratic practices uh, and to think about how they might correspond or cohere to a kind of imaginative um, imag imaginative practice. Does that answer? <laughs> yes? Um, no, there was a, there's there's two others that were 16 and 17, and then I don't know why it became number 423. Um, so no, <laughs> there is no reason. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm, I'm thinking about this uh, how you know. Uh, sorry. For Um, yeah, have a seat. Come over here. Um, I'm thinking about writing that is incredibly lush, or not lush, let's say beautiful because of repetition and um, sonic devices um, that is also uh, staging or describing um, like cultural trauma and um, or, you know, weaponized economic global systems and 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 I'm and I'm wondering about 
how, what sort of devices you might use if you're thinking about how to interrupt the beautification process or the aestheticization um, of these traumatic situations so that, or, or how do you think about aestheticizing um, traumatic content? And, and what devices do you use mm -hmm. in order to interrupt that beautification if you do? So I think one of the things that I was talking about earlier, and it's certainly, I think, something that I think about, maybe not quite in those terms, but more sort of generally about the ethics of writing about violence. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think part of it has to do with a, a, a kind of, um, I don't know, um, this rhetorical strategy that I was talking about of, of um, interrupting, uh, of, of reflecting on that actual process in the writing. Right. Um, so, as a way of um, acknowledging that there, I guess, is an author there, and that there is perhaps a, a certain um, um, ethics that go along with um, with with thinking uh, with, with writing about it, and that um, I guess for me, what had I don't know. One of the things that I guess I had, I had had made me feel. Um, a little more um, um, made me feel as if I could um, approach the material was to be not just writing about the not just writing about violent content, but writing about how we view violent content, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and to think about that as being um, something that is an experience that we all share, right? Um, like we all have to figure out how to like wake up in the morning knowing that you know um, we sent missiles into Syria last week and that you know uh, 200 people died in Syria last week and that like on the corner you know two blocks away from my house that the police shot a person right uh, and like these are um, so you know of course I don't mean to say that I would experience them the same way as somebody who's um, directly affected by that violence but we all have to deal with that question Right, of like how we're going to absorb that and how we're going to respond to that and what it means to us. Uh, and I suppose a certain sense of privilege comes along with not having to deal with that question um, in your own body, right? As being somebody who um, has, uh, is directly a subject of that violence, right? Um, if that's true. Sure, exactly, yes. Um, and, but that, um, but that that notion of um, of this uh, of of viewing and absorbing and um, being a part of a violent society is um, is not something that one needs um, to have. You don't need to have direct experience about that because about like you don't need to like have been brutalized yourself because you are absorbing this information all of the time. I guess that's that's part of my about it. Um, and then I think the other part of the question, I guess, about the aesthetics, uh, or about, about interrupting the aesthetics, in some ways I, I, I don't, uh, I think the other part is <laughs> um, that um, if there is indeed what you're calling a, a beauty <laughs> to the writing, um, there is a lot of uh, sort of um, um, gore at the same time, right? So I think that that might uh, be part of it too, right? Like 
to, um, to not so much be thinking about um, uh, writing, um, uh, not like, I don't think I'm like writing a beautiful book about um, violent experience, but that, um, that the experience of, um, the experience of violence is simply um, being communicated in the way in which it's being communicated and to sort of see it as, as being aestheticized. I guess I don't see it that way, right? But I think a reader is certainly may or might. I'm, I'm asking for a few different reasons. One's, sure. one's personal and yeah. um, you know, with, with my own writing, and also I'm teaching in a, an introduction to fiction class. And mm -hmm. uh, what we're working on right now is, is concrete details. And what we haven't lectured, I haven't lectured on quite yet, um, is the concept of prurience mm -hmm. um, and you know how how challenging it is to um, to give concrete details about a story that has been televised or um, or um, made uh, exciting, in, or made pornographic, violence made pornographic, um, and how challenging it is to, um, to, to talk about violent situations without um, creating a, a, a prurient effect or, a, or sort of a libidinal resolution or something like that, bioliricism. Sure, or transforming it into yeah. spectacle. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think my only sort of solid answer is is a is a self awareness, right? And that um, where I think this stems into dangerous territory is um, when people lose the sort of distance, lose the idea that um, that there that there are ethics involved, that you're that there is a difference between um, the documentation of reality and reality and that we are um, somehow um, mediate you know that, that 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 mediating it is um, what we all have to do right in different ways yeah can I follow that question up sure with something that I think is, is kind of corollary to this too is, is um, a question about your own conception of, of, of your writerly voice and its relationship to the to the reader, mm -hmm. because I, I, as I as as you're reading, I, I notice so many moments where you're you're addressing the reader and kind of to your reader, mm -hmm. or consider this, or think about this reader, that kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. there seems to be um, a real kind of directorial way in which you are addressing the reader or including the reader. And there's also kind of an intimacy I think that you create through um, your more lyrical moments in the poem mm -hmm. too. And so I guess my question is just thinking about if you could talk more about um, how you've come about your own conception of voice in relationship to the reader. I think too because uh, so much of the, the radical content of your work as you've art, uh, kind of brilliantly articulated it tonight is that kind of comparative work that you're doing. Um, and it's a kind of comparative work that we're, we're sorely missing within our own public discourse here in the United States. And I feel like your book and your work with the audience and reader is is trying to do that comparative work and, and show that comparative work that you've done already as a scholar. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you yeah, could talk a little bit about your relationship to the reader as you write. Um, so I mean, I guess starting with the voice, I think the one thing I, I would say is, um, is that um, what I really wanted to do and maybe still want to do is to write novels. Uh, and um, that 
that I have been probably more influenced by um, by novelists than I have been by poets, and in particular when I started writing, um, writers who uh, sort of wrote in um, unparagraphed forms and wrote very kind of lengthy sentences uh, were really important to me. So, so Thomas Bernhard uh, and Samuel Beckett um, were um, two, two writers for the Wolanya as well, um, and others. But, but Bernhard in particular was somebody who's just voice, who, who I just sort of devoured his books and who you sort of can't read without somehow like starting to talk the way um, the speakers in those books talk, which are like in these kind of ranting um, and uninterrupted uh, um, anti-national ways as well. Um, so I think that 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 is part of it, right? Is that like I, I feel like I'm wanting to write um, a novel, uh, but don't quite know how, and I don't quite know how because I feel like to write novels, I, I guess I don't know how to maintain a sort of intensity of of language while writing a continuous narrative um, because it seems to me like novels sometimes like good novelists sometimes have to write boring sentences um, like somebody has to like get up and go to the bathroom right uh, and I don't know how to do that work uh, and um, not hate the sentence right um, but I, I mean I, I want to read that right I want to you know, I want to re read novels where people get up and go to the bathroom um, but I just don't I just can't figure out how to how to how to maintain that um, so that that's one answer to your question remind me of the other I was thinking about um, voice and in relationship to the, to the audience. Oh, reader, okay. How you're conceiving your reader? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, no, that's a really good question. Uh, and, and I feel like there is a reluctance to say that you write for readers, right? Especially, I think nonfiction writers have a, less of a hard time doing this. Um, and, but I think, maybe fiction writers as well, but I think poets... Um, are very reluctant to sort of acknowledge um, that there is a reader on the end of it whose experience matters, um, and um, and and maybe this is like has more to do with the sort of experimental poetry circles that um, I have uh, been formed by in certain ways or been around in the United States, um, but where where um, somehow experimentation became. Um, synonymous with um, linguistic obfuscation or obscurity, right? Um, and, um, and so that's fine, I guess, on its own, but there, what comes along with that is a limited audience, I, I think, right? And a, um, and, a, and a sort of saying to the audience that like you, uh, that, um, that the burden is on you to understand me versus like me making myself understandable to you. Um, and all I really have to say is I don't know that I'm cheapening the experience or making it particularly easy for an audience, but that I do, do certainly think about, especially when I'm like editing a, a book, like at that point, I, I'm, I'm like very much aware of like, would I actually want to read this book, right? Mm -hmm. And um, would I want to sit through this and, uh, and to think about the commitment that you're asking a reader to have with your work, right? And it's a lot. Um, and that you are giving them an experience, right? And you're like asking somebody to spend, I don't know, um, a couple hours, a couple days, whatever, um, with your work, right? And that, um, 
that that I don't know about um, requirements or anything like that, but that uh, I think that um, I want that experience to not. I, I know what I do when I pick up books that I don't want to read, right? Um, and 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 I, I I don't give them a chance because there's plenty of other stuff that I do want to read, right? Uh, so I am very much aware of the fact that somebody might just pick up the book uh, and put it down uh, very quickly, right? So um, I don't know how that changes what I do, but I certainly um, maybe this goes back to the question of, of um, incorporating things into the presentation of the work, right? Is that it just seems to me to like that it matters, that it matters like the relationship you're forming with a reader and an audience and that um, there is a certain, um, I don't know, respectfulness that um, I want to bring to that relationship, right? Um, so, I don't know, does that? Yeah, absolutely. Does that help? We have to leave the space uh, that um, there are books for sale at the front, and thank you all for Thank you, guys.